Hello and welcome to the Dungeon Pastors. I'm Stephen Taylor. And, and I'm oh, I'm Derek White. I jumped in too early. There we go. All right. <laughs> so today we are going to be talking about that scary of topics, Halloween. Ooh. Um, so Derek. I thought we could start with talking about our favorite monsters. So I'll pass it over to you. What's your favorite monster? That is a tough one. And I've been thinking about this ever since you threw that at me. What is my favorite monster? I mean, it depends on, on what I'm doing. I mean, I, I always loved dragons, especially old school dragons that cast spells and had riddles and all of those fun things. So, of course, I've loved dragons, but uh, vampires, uh, vampires, there's just something about that, that that is appealing. I think probably the connection to the church and the ideas of sacrifice that go in it, into it and being immortal and never aging or changing, those types of things. So uh, vampires uh, around Halloween are always fun, uh, not the sparkly type. <laughs> don't like vampires that sparkle. Um, uh, so I would probably say vampires are, are one of my, are right now one of my favorites. It is subject to change. Mm. It's subject to change. Yeah. So, so what, what's your favorite monster, Stephen? It's always between vampires and werewolves, which is really cliche. <laughs> but hey. werewolves, because let, let's face it, I'm a hairy man. So, you know werewolf is kind of you know although if we're going down the where route where bears are slightly more interesting to me and um, especially the fact that in dungeons and dragons they're lawful good which um you know and it, there was a thing i read once about um, somebody being a, a lawful good werebear character whenever the full moon came out they turned into this massive bear that would just go around helping old ladies over the street. I found that hilarious. <laughs> so, you know, um, vampires, because, you know, you can probably tell from the fact that I'm glowing just by artificial light. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite pale, you know. Um, and when I was growing up, I was really pale and a full goth. And um, my favourite video game series was Legacy of Cain, the Soul Reaver stuff. And they were amazing games. And really, the mythos there really got me into vampires in quite a big way for probably longer than was healthy, to be honest. <laughs> Did you ever play any Vampire the Masquerade? No, I didn't, unfortunately. I have heard of it since, but I've kind of missed that train. A little bit, oh, unfortunately. Wow. Yeah, yeah that, 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 that's a bit of an interesting game. Mm. A really good mechanic. Uh, the live action ones can get a little bit strange, uh, but the uh, tabletop versions are, are really good, and they've got some great source material. I love a lot of the source material that came out in the 90s, some really great source material. Yeah. Well, I was that person who loved Queen of the Damned, the movie. <laughs> yeah. the hey, that's all right. I did. I did not mind Queen of the Damned. I did not hate on it like so many people did. I mean, it wasn't great, but it wasn't horrible. Of course, yeah. my favorite vampire movie is Blade. 
Mm. Blade is one of my favorite of all time. I, I remember going and watching Blade 3 in the cinema and just being like, what is this? This isn't I, I do not know of this Blade 3 you speak of. <laughs> I do not know. I, there, there were only two Blade movies. I don't know what you're talking about. Have you ever seen uh, Priest? Yes! Oh, that was good. That was, I liked Priest. I mean, Paul Bettany is just amazing at whatever he does, but that one is, it got panned for some reason when it came out, but actually it's, it's a very, it's an entertaining film. I'd watch it repeatedly. Yeah, I need to watch that again. That was really good. Priest. And then, uh, what is that uh, anime that you, you told me that I, I've been watching, uh, you told me about? Where it has the zombies that act like vampires almost. Um, oh, oh it, it's, Yeah, no, yeah. no, not Seismanos. No. Uh, it's the one where they have the train. They have the train going through the areas. Oh, oh, uh, Cabinary of the Iron Fortress. Iron Fortress. Yes. I've mm -hmm. liked that because while you know they look kind of like zombies, they really act more like vampires in our culture. Yeah. And so when my wife watched some of that with me, I had to explain to her that Japanese vampires are a lot different than American vampires. And uh, and there's so much good vampire stuff uh, oh, yeah. in the monster manuals of D&D. &D. Uh, of course, you've got Ravenloft, which is a classic yep. Dungeons and Dragons adventure. Uh, and, 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 and I guess one of the things I really like about vampires is not the angst part but it's that struggle against mm -hmm. one's personal bestiality i think that's why I like werewolves as well it's a it's about that inner struggle between the monster within and your humanity and which yeah. is going to win and of that course really really yeah. really good anime on that um yes have you ever seen helsing i don't before? think so. i don't think so Oh, well, yeah, you, you need to. It's yeah. very, very, And then, good. of course, you know, there's Vampire Hunter D. You can't yeah, forget. Is, of course, yeah. Wow, I did not know we were going to be getting into anime this much. No, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so all of you out there watching the Dungeon Pastors or listening to us, uh, you did not realize we're also, we also love anime, you know? Yes. Well, and it's geeky. Of it is. You know. It is. And there's some great stuff to inspire your gaming, inspire horror gaming, inspire mm. uh, all of these things. So so what I'm going to throw out at you, Stephen, is, you know, in light of Halloween and in light of All Saints Day, which uh, we uh, in the Methodist Church, we usually move that to an All Saints Sunday since, mm. you know, trying to get people in church on a Friday is almost impossible yeah. around here. <laughs> I'm sure it's a problem over there, too. Yeah. Uh, in light of Halloween and All Saints Day, uh, how do we as Christians deal with this concept of horror? How mm -hmm. do we deal with that? We'll, we'll move on to the next one a little bit later, but, but how do we deal with the concept of horror and monsters, and why would Christians even want to, to, uh, to uh, enjoy that type of genre? Well... <laughs> It's a, it's a difficult one, but the way that I always look at it is monsters, fae, things like that, are, are fantasy at their root. They're not real things. They, they, they may have been thought of as real things at some point in time, 
um, as uh, as people were trying to understand the natural world around them. And they built stories to help them understand the natural world. And that's because God is the creator of life and, and the greatest story ever told. You know, that, that slightly cheesy phrase that tends to come out around about Christmas and Easter time of Jesus' life. It's the greatest story ever told. And it is. Yeah. And actually, that that fantasy, that, that living myth that is there, that um, C.S. Lewis um, never used to believe in Christianity. He saw it as just another myth, one that linked in with um, things like the, the Norse gods, things like um, the Egyptian god Mythos and all of that, until Tolkien sat him down once and said, well, yeah, it, it is mythical, except it did happen. And that's, that's the main difference, is that it is a myth that has actually happened. None of the myths have ever happened before. Jesus did come to earth. Jesus did die on the cross. Jesus did resurrect. There's plenty of historical evidence proving those facts, which I'm not going to go into great depth here because um, that's entirely another podcast. Yes, yes, um, that, that's, yeah, yeah. But um, we, we're drawn to myth because the things that God does, that they're unexplainable in terms that we have of our natural world around us. He's removed from how we are in, in a way that we, we can't really fully comprehend. So we come up with these mythological creatures to explain things and to process things that we don't understand. I, I think that's a, a, a great part of it. And, and this is where, you know, it, it's funny to have the American constantly quoting all these British folks. And that, but that's where I come across G.K. Chesterton, who uh, preceded both Tolkien and Lewis, and uh, this is and Chesterton said, I deal here with with what ethic and philosophy come from being fed on fairy tales. If I were describing them in detail, I could note many noble and healthy principles that arise from them. And then he goes on to talk about Jack and the giant killer, that giants should be killed because uh, they are a manly mutant, mutiny against pride. Uh, he says the lesson of Cinderella is the same as the lesson of Mary's Magnificat, that the lowly are raised up or that the lowly are exalted. Sleeping Beauty, uh, Beauty and the Beast is, uh, is an example of a great lesson that a thing must be loved before it is lovable. Yeah. And so what these stories do is they impact us on a deep emotional level. So even when we see monsters, like I said just a little while ago, uh, werewolves and vampires highlight our struggle with our own bestial nature. Mm. So when we see a werewolf, you know, and there is something in us that wants to identify with the werewolf. Something that wants uh, within us that wants to identify with the ability to go out and ravage and rampage, and I would say that shows us how bestial we still are. Uh, whereas when we see the human character playing that werewolf, struggling with it in that story, 
that impacts us on a deep level and allows us to understand it's okay to struggle with our own bestial nature. The same with vampires is that desire for immortality and for everlasting life. But when it's corrupted by feeding off of other people and that are, that everlasting immortality can only come from draining other people. Mm. And so those stories really do speak to us on a deeply philosophical level. And uh, it, it goes beyond this idea of reason and facts. Uh, you know, certain things in these fairy stories are very reasonable, but some of them need to, we need to see that they're meant to resonate with us on an emotional level. And I think that's why the Christian story is the greatest story ever told, as you said, is because it resonates with us on an emotional level, or at least it should. It should speak to our hearts so that when we see these monsters in the world around us and we see it during this time, you know, part of the, the, the thing about Halloween is it's making fun of death. It's yeah. saying, death, you don't have any power over us. It's laughing in the face of the monsters. And uh, that's something we don't do enough. We don't laugh in the face of monsters. Well, there's a, a phrase that, and again, I, I can't remember who coined it, but that we're currently going through a phase of, of what's called the pornography of death. Hmm. So death is pornographic. It's something we don't, we don't look at anymore. It used to be if somebody died, um, you'd hold a wake for them where the coffin was open. It'd be in your parlour. Sorry, pointing to my parlour. That's out that way, which looks like I'm pointing to you, but I'm not. It's that way. And um, the, the corpse would be kept there for a day, two days, for you to be able to go and say your goodbyes, to see them in death. So, so you were confronted with death. There used to be public hangings. There used to be public executions. That you, you, could, you would see death every day. And as medicine and as um, the, the philosophy of, of law and things like that have changed, death's become something that we actively hide from. People go to a funeral home now. It's got to the point that the parlour has become the living room instead to right. distinctly change it from that viewpoint. That's something that I got from Richard Beck, who I'll be quoting a little bit later on on some other stuff. But the, the parlour has become the living room, the room for the living. You don't go in and see, well, you can go and see dead people at the funeral home. I personally will never be doing it again after seeing my father-in-law because that wasn't him and it, it wasn't very pleasant. But that, that's the thing. It, it's not pleasant. You, you don't, death shouldn't be pleasant. But right. we, we don't want to face it. So because we're not facing it and because we're not, actively seeing what death really is we get this morbid fascination with what death could be so you get the the hideously gory tv shows that show death in all sorts of yeah like house of a thousand corpses by rob zombie where you know it's it's all about it's gore for the sake of gore right and it's because we've got this morbid fascination with death that we have to see it at extremes because if you see proper death and it, it used to be in movies you'd you'd watch a western and somebody gets shot and you'd, you'd see that they bleed out over five minutes or so it'd be very slow 
All right. Mm-hmm. Now somebody gets shot and, and they're dead straight away. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, that, that's an excellent point you make. Oh, and by the way, it was Jeffrey Gorer in 1955, a sociologist who coined the phrase, the pornography of death. And uh, you're absolutely right. When we deal with death in a real way, it is not pretty. It's not an explosion of blood. It's not this thing that's laughed at or joked about. Um, I was watching last night the newest episode of, uh, well, the newest season of Queer Eye in Japan. And in the first episode, the lady uh, who they're helping, uh, you know, if you haven't ever watched Queer Eye, it's on Netflix. It's a wonderful show. And the lady they're helping is a nurse in Japan who started a hospice. And the reason she did is because she saw her sister die in the hospital. And she felt like her sister would have been much happier if she'd have been able to die at home. Yeah. And, and as a pastor, I've experienced that. I have been in homes where, you know, especially in the southern part of the U.S., it's still a little bit, it's not as common as it used to be, but it still can be found. And I have been in homes where people have died, and it was a very good experience for the family. They were there with their loved one. They were able to care for them. They were uh, able to be with them when they passed from this life. And I've been in that presence many times. Uh, sadly, when my mother passed away, she was able to pass away at home, but I wasn't able to be there because I lived to, uh, a state or two away. And these are important things for people. And, and it, when we see the reality of death and we see that death can be slow and deteriorating, that's difficult on us, but it's important to acknowledge it. That's why you know, when our, our dog died, I didn't tell my son that our dog went to a farm upstate. Uh, when someone dies, children need to know and be ready for that. It, it is scary to a degree, but it, it is also reality. One of the realities of life is that you will die. Yeah. And instead of glorifying the horror, it, and, and I love scary movies. I don't like horror movies. But I like scary movies. I like to be shocked. I like mysteries. I like I like things that really just make me think and you wonder what's going on and the suspense. But but to just have gore splattered across screens for the sake of gore is just ridiculous. And um, and I don't think that's what we do uh, on Halloween. You know, Halloween is a time when we say there are monsters in this world and we can laugh at them. And as you pointed out in our discussion before this podcast, All Hallows' Eve has Christian origins. It it is a holiday with Christian origins meant to lead to All Saints' Day. Yes, others may misuse it, but just because someone misuses a Christian holiday or a Christian time does not mean we as Christians should abandon it. Uh, it means we should recover it. I mean, I've seen people misuse the, the image of the cross. Does that mean we get rid of a cross? I've seen people misuse images of church buildings. Does that mean we get rid of church buildings? Uh, no. And, you know, I've seen people misuse numerous Christian images. 
that doesn't mean we should get rid of them. That means we should let people know what these are about. Yeah. And All Hallows' Eve is a feast time when you prepare to remember those saints who have passed on before you. And it's a time to honor them and to honor their memory. In America, I know Hispanic culture is much better about that than Anglo culture because they celebrate Dia del Muertos, the Day of the Dead, where they remember their ancestors and they talk about their ancestors. And in the life of our churches, when we celebrate All Saints Day, and I believe it's the same in the Anglican tradition, it's about remembering their journey of faith, yeah. uh, how they followed Christ, how they lived out their Christian faith. And that goes back to it's all about an interconnected story. And we forget that so often when we neglect things like All Hallows' Eve, when we neglect death, when we submit to the pornography of death and we hide it away, then we become slaves to the fear of death. Yeah. Uh, which is something we'll talk about as well. Uh, and it, a book that I recommend for all of our listeners is by Richard Beck, and it's called The Slavery to the Fear of Death. And uh, that's mainly based off of this passage in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Since the, therefore the children share flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. And so, Stephen, when you hear that phrase, slavery to the fear of death, what does that bring to your mind? It's being shackled by, you know, you, we all have our fears. And there are, fears can stop you from wanting to do things. If you have a fear of heights, you're probably not going to, you know, climb a ladder. Now, if, if you've got a fear of spiders, you're most likely not going to go into jungles where there'll be lots of spiders or going to zoos with spider exhibits. You know, it's um, so having a fear of death. The problem with that one is you can't avoid death. Death, mm. death will come. That, that's a guarantee. You know, there's, there's only two things that are guaranteed in life, and that's death and taxes. So, you know, having that fear of death means that you live your entire life scared of what's going to come next. And you can't live your life that way. No. You can't, it, it, it's not healthy to live that way because you're constantly worrying about what's going to come next. And it's not a Christian way of living either because we're not afraid of death. We know that because we've accepted Christ, our sins are saved, that uh, we've been saved from our sins. And um, our sins are saved. I, our sins are saved. Yeah, no. yeah. I, I keep mine in a little box here as a reminder sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, we know we're going to be able to have eternal life in heaven at the right hand of the Father alongside Jesus. We'll be in our Father's house. We, we've got that to live and look forward to. So having this fear of death to me doesn't make sense. We, we shouldn't be slaves to that fear because we've been set free. You know, we, we've had our chains cast off us. We, we are now free. You see, there's the flip side of the fear of death, where what you're talking about is how we avoid, we avoid going to places where we see death. And, and, and I understand that, and I agree with that. 
But the flip side of that is, is when is the fear of death can also be shown in our pride, trying to make a legacy for ourselves, trying to make an inheritance for ourselves, trying to put our names on the biggest buildings. I'm not going to name any politicians who, who might want to do that, but you know, part of what we do it, and part of what people do, and I've seen this all over the world is they, they try and put their name on, on a building to pick on the British a little bit. I, I remember when I was at Cambridge, who is, whose face is, is on Cambridge? It's uh, King Henry. He's there because yeah. that's part of the slavery. And that's a, that's a type of slavery to the fear of death that many Christians, it's a trap Christians fall into, is we say, you know, I want my name on something. I want to be remembered. And, and I've fallen into that trap. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't go by the geek preacher if I didn't want people to remember me. No. But at the same time, it's not about just remembering me. It's not about my own pride. It's about humility. And, and when we overcome that slavery to the fear of death, we don't feel like we have to make stuff so that we'll be remembered after we're gone. Uh, and for the Christian, it's not about remembering me after I'm gone. It's about remembering my service to the one I love, and that is Jesus. And so for Christians in that journey, one of the things in overcoming that slavery to the fear of death is, is putting aside our pride, putting aside our desire for position and power, and learning to live into a type of humility. And I think that's even more difficult. It, it's nice to have the comfort that there's something after this life and that I will continue to go on. But it's very difficult to say while I'm living this life, if I'm not remembered, if I don't make something great, that's all right, because there is someone greater than me. That doesn't mean to not to strive and not to live and not to do your best, but it means that it's not so much important as important about getting your name out there as it is about, you know, uh, showing the world that you love the world and you love the people in the world and showing others that you love them. It's, it's how you demonstrate Christ's light to the world. That, that's what you should leave behind yourself. Not not you as a person, but the the impact of the good that you've done. Right. Yeah. For for him. Not for yourself. For him. Anything else is pride. That's something I think we all struggle with. It, it's very, very difficult to be completely selfless. Uh, I mean, if we were completely selfless, probably wouldn't be making a podcast and sending it out, you know. No. That's no. Uh, that's just the, the way it goes. Um so, well, yeah, and part, part of making a podcast for us, too, and let's be very honest, is it gives us an excuse to get together and talk. That's true. And I don't, yeah, part of it is, yeah, we want to share these conversations with you out there, and we know these conversations are going to appeal to everyone, but part of it is an opportunity for Stephen and I to get together and chat about where we're coming from and to talk about the fun, fun things we love uh, and to talk about games. And so with that in mind, I'm going to throw something at you that's not in our show notes. Uh, do you have a favorite horror game? So lately, so that those who want to hear something about gaming can hear about some horror games. 
Do I have a favourite one? There's a question. Um, hmm. In my collection, I've got four games that could come under horror. So I've got Mysterium. Which oh, is yeah. A, yeah, really fun little game. Uh, well, I say little game, it takes ages to set it up because there's lots of fiddly bits. But it's basically a, a, a game of Cluedo where every player is trying to find out a different set of person, location, murder weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the setting with that one is one person is a ghost who's just recently been murdered and everybody else are psychic mediums who are trying to figure out what happened. And uh, the ghost communicates this through really weird abstract art cards. Um, so it could be, this card's got a lot of red on it, and, and so is that person who is down there. Maybe that's who it is. Which I, I, I find it really good fun, especially with people who you know. Because you're oh, yeah. trying to come up with ways to, you know, to help have them figure it out as easily as yeah. possible. And when they can figure out how your brain works, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another one I've got is Tiny Epic Zombies. That one's mm. really good fun. I've not um, heard of that one. Oh, right. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Not easily to hand, anyway. It's on there somewhere. <laughs> um, I shall cut that bit out, I think. Um, no, no, leave it in. Leave it in. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, t- Tiny Epic Zombies, you are survivors stuck in a mall, and you need to do various things to escape. And you have three different um, objectives to do that are very difficulties. And it's just really good fun. And it comes in a box that's about yay big. Oh, you wow. That's great. Nice and portable. So, yeah. Um, and then I've got my Warhammer and my Warhammer 40,000. And the horror of that is not playing it. Playing it is good fun. Some people go, oh, no, it's horrible. That, that's what um, I was thinking. The horror of that is, is what it costs to play Warhammer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's scary because just, my wife would kill me. Yeah, so would mine if she knew. Um, <laughs> hopefully, she doesn't watch your videos. Well, yeah, hopefully so. Yeah. Uh, no, she she does know because she bought me some of it for Christmas, and oh. yeah, so therefore knows the price. But you know, you, I've but, got well, a, isn't that a British geeky thing though? You have to have played a Warhammer if you're a British gamer. You have to have at least had some Warhammer in your home at one time. Isn't that a requirement? Possibly. <laughs> a lot of us. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's at the point now that uh, the the Scouts and the Duke of Edinburgh awards count Warhammer as part of their thing. So you know. Great, um, but yeah. So I've got a a, a night haunt army, which are ghosts. Oh yeah, and, and I've got my um, death guard, care space marines, who are all plague and evil and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, which was great painting them in church once. That was fun. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. There's the one night ultimate series. You know, one night ultimate werewolf, one night ultimate vampire, one night ultimate alien, where it's a um, that that's probably my favourite one of them all. Yes, it's, it's a hidden role. You've got some people who are aliens or vampires or werewolves, some people who are villagers, and the villagers have to figure out who the bad guys are. Um, and you've got five minutes roughly to figure it out. If the villagers succeed, hooray! If they fail, the bad guys win. 
So it, it's it's really good fun and is daft at the same time. And I do like a bit of daftness. Oh, so yeah. how about you? Anyway. That, that well, I, I, I do like Ultimate Werewolf. Ultimate Werewolf has been fun. I've played that a number of times. But the problem is uh, my daughter and I have talked about it. And, and both of us tend to get killed really quick. It, it, it's really weird when you're in a leadership position. Uh, you know, people call you out right away. Oh, you're the bad guy. <laughs> you know, oh, wait, who's the bad guy in a game where there's a hidden bad person and a preacher's in the room? Oh, the preacher must be the bad guy, right? Yeah. I mean, almost every movie you ever see, who's the bad guy in the movie? The preacher. So, <laughs> so the only time I have fun playing Ultimate Werewolf is when I sneak up on a game at a convention and nobody in the game knows who I am. And then they're like, oh, who's this stranger? Yeah, come on in and play. And then then I might I might make it for a few rounds of Ultimate Werewolf. But one of my favorites, and I haven't played this in a while, it came out, I think, around 2004, and it's Betrayal at House on the Hill. And it's a tile-based game uh, that has win conditions that change depending on who you are and where you are and when the, when the horror episode occurs. And when that occurs, generally you'll have one player who becomes a traitor, and they have to go out, the, out of the room, read the rule book, to find out what their win condition is. And then the other players are in the room and then they have to find out what their win condition is. And so you work on that and it's filled with all the usual tropes from horror movies, zombies, uh, werewolves, vampires, dragons, I think may even be in it. I never played through all the scenarios, but there's quite a few. Uh, it, it's a load of fun and I enjoy that. Um, I played Arkham, um, what is it? it? It's one of the Arkham or Call of Cthulhu style board games. I played that. It's been kind of fun. I've enjoyed it. I can't remember the title of it off the top of my head. So it, it's not really one of my top favorites, but what I liked was that it was a cooperative game. So unlike Betrayal at House on the Hill, when the event occurs, one player can get ganged up on by the other players. And that can lead to some frustration and some anger, but uh, the cooperative horror games are much more fun. And then, of course, there's a variety of role-playing games. Uh, of course, I've already mentioned, I think I mentioned last time we had an episode uh, about my love of Call of Cthulhu, mm -hmm. but one of my original loves is the Ravenloft setting. And the Ravenloft setting is ruled by Strahd, the vampire, and uh, the world of Ravenloft that they later created with the different domains. Domains of Dread is one of my favorite source books where you have all these evil characters, all these evil people that were in various Dungeons and Dragons settings who have their own domains and they can't leave their domains. So they have to fight by proxy amongst <laughs> one another. And very often the players are used by them to kind of wage the war. And so that's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I've enjoyed that. There's so much you can do with that setting. And, and there are so many horror elements there because, uh, you know, uh, unlike Call of Cthulhu where there's really no chance of winning, 
in Ravenloft. If you do good enough, you might win and they'll let you out of Ravenloft. <laughs> you know, uh, they call it the Dibby Plane of Dread, but I almost think it's kind of like a purgatory where you get a chance to work out some redemption themes. So I'm a huge fan of Ravenloft. Uh, so, uh, thank you, Tracy Hickman. Uh, so, so yeah, co-author of, of Dragonlance novels. So, so that, that would be my favorite. Yeah. Mm. So bringing it back to Halloween. Yes. Just, uh, as we, as we come to the end, as it were, I've got this Richard Beck quote that I alluded to earlier. Every Halloween, he writes an article about Halloween-y sort of stuff. In, in this particular one, he says, psychologically, I think Halloween performs two important functions. First, Halloween allows us to collectively process our eventual death and mortality. The graveyards, corpses, blood, skeletons, and coffins of Halloween allow us, on a yearly basis, to confront our physicality and work through our largely repressed fear of death. In this, Halloween serves an important existential function. Second, Halloween allows us to work through our fears of the uncanny, the things that go bump in the night. This is the second major theme of Halloween, which manifests itself in Halloween's evening and monster motifs, the bats, owls, ghosts and goblins. The world is a scary place at times, a strange and mysterious place, and we tend to fill its dark corners with monsters. Halloween, particularly for children, allows us to roam a night filled with ghosts and ghouls to find only friends and neighbours and candy. Again, vague fears are collectively confronted and processed. And then he goes on to say that um, the two big themes of Halloween are death and the uncanny. And they're really healthy confrontations of our collective anxieties about frailty, mortality, and, and the world. So it's giving us, it's empowering us, it's giving us a sense of control over this big, spooky, and scary world. Um, but unfortunately, in some Christian communities, those motifs of death and the uncanny have been linked with the occult. And from the occult to demons and, and to Satan, um, which is, is a very big jump to make that jump. Uh, part of the problem is the New Testament starts to use the word demon for a lot of things. So before it was ghosts, it was spirits, it was things like that. They all get lumped under the word demon. So it, it starts to confuse people because they think it, everything is evil. When actually it's not quite as clear cut as that. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. It, it's definitely not clear cut. Uh, I think conf uh, allowing children to confront their fears is, is an essential part of the Halloween experience, allowing adults to confront their fears. And, and uh, that's why I'm constantly reminded of the G.K. Chesterton quote, which uh, Neil Gaiman uh, you know, those of you who have heard me before talk on this topic, it's a quote I use time and again. Uh, fairy tales do not give the child their first idea of the bogey. What fairy tales give the child is their first clear idea of the possible defeat of a bogey. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since the child had an imagination. 
What the fairy tale provides for the child is a St. George to kill the dragon. And, and that's the big thing is when we, we put on these costumes of monsters and things like that, it allows us, one, as I said earlier, to identify with the monster, but it lets us also know these monsters can be defeated. And I think that's important for a child. And, and that's one of my problems with some of the horror out there where the monsters don't get defeated. And especially for children, for us as adults, we know that sometimes it doesn't seem that the monsters will be defeated. But children need to be affirmed that the monsters will be defeated. And ultimately, when I go back to that passage in Hebrews, the ultimate monsters of sin and death are defeated in Christ. And we have to have that outlook if we want to survive as human beings. If we want to live in this world is to know that the darkness, the things that scare us will ultimately be defeated. And, and I think that's an important part of Halloween is knowing that evil will be defeated and that the dark will be cast out by the light. We've got jack-o'-lanterns. We're bringing light into the darkness. That's right. You know, um, part of the origins of Halloween and the idea of dressing up and things like that, on, on All Hallows' Eve, that was the time to think about the spirits of the dead before All Saints' Day, which was the day that you thought about the, the spirits of the saints. And that did get twisted up in the occult a little bit in the, in the idea of Samhain, in that they uh, used to believe that the ghosts of those who had died in the previous year couldn't settle until All Saints' Day. So All Hallows' Eve was their last chance to get you. So you'd best wear a mask and you'd best hide and you'd best put jack-o'-lanterns out to confuse them. And it's where that sort of idea comes from. I don't I think as things have become more understanding, as things have, as the world's become more scientific, a lot of those fears have been left by the wayside because you know, we, we understand that Jesus has defeated death. That, that's what he did. And all of these things of death that used to be something to be frightened of have gone. So like, like you said at the beginning, now our Halloween, it's not about hiding ourselves or anything like that. It's about mocking the monsters. It's about taking the mick out of the monsters and showing them that we're not scared of them. They're not something to be feared. And, and there's also that next step into All Saints Day, and, and we forget this so often in our hyper-rational culture, is we forget about the thin places. That thin place between uh, this world and the one to come. And, and that really, really frustrates me because, you know, um, I, I heard someone recently say, well, you know, Christians shouldn't believe in uh, ghosts or spirits of the dead because it's not biblical. And I said, I, I later said to someone, I said, have you ever read the story of Saul? Yeah. Uh, and uh, have you ever heard the story of the Witch of Endor? Uh, yes, George Lucas stole the story of the Witch of Endor. Uh, <laughs> in, Endor is, is in the Bible. And there, there is... You know, we see that thin place and where Samuel comes back. Now, Saul gets in trouble for that, 
but Samuel crosses that thin place. We see a very big thin place on the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament, where you have Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Now, you know, uh, they have crossed that thin place. And so for us as Christians, we should not be scared of those who have gone before us because all saints time is a time to celebrate that thin place so that when we come to the table uh, or for us the eucharistic table the communion table the lord's table whatever you want to talk call it when we come to that table and I, I said this in the sermon yesterday so i'm repeating myself but when we come to that table we are coming to a thin place where christ is present but all the saints of god who have gone before us are present of course, I had to be a little geeky about it, and I had to say all the saints of God who will come after us are also present at this table, because this table breaks all barriers of time and space. And so we as Christians of all people should not be trying to live into this hyper-rationalism where we ignore the thin places, where we ignore the mystical and the spiritual and the imaginative. Because that's another great thing about these holidays and with these costumes. People become imaginative. I mean, I know now more and more people don't even dress up as monsters. They, they put on an anime costume and they cosplay during Halloween. And they make up their own costumes because they want to use their imagination. And you and I both have said this before in our private conversations. Imagination is definitely something Christians need to recover and glory in the beauty of people's creativity. You know, by being creative, we are being like God. God is the creator. So anytime that we create something, we are being godly. Mm. And yet, yet stifled by so many people. It's, it's strange to me. It blows my mind because, sadly, many people in our Christian traditions are the ones who stifle creativity. You know, people that are often viewed as non-Christian or people of other faiths or people of no faith at all are often seen as being much more creative than we are as Christians. And that used to not be so. I mean, Christians, uh, people used religious art to inspire them. The great writers we love and geek them are Tolkien and Lewis and G.K. Chesterton and George MacDonald. Uh, you know, of course, I know many people watching this will already know this, but, but Stephen and I are, are repeating this because we want you to spur your imaginations. You could be the next great Christian game designer. Well, no. The next game great game designer who happens to be a Christian. Yes. The next great artist who happens to be a Christian. And so use that religious imagery and, and use the myths and this power of these stories to transform your art and your storytelling. I mean, this is what, what we should be doing, and this is what we should be at the forefront of. And sadly, we, we are so far behind. And I would love to see Christians recover that. And I, th I think it's a fear of where things that they are creating comes from. And um, I was having a conversation in the Saving the Game Discord earlier with a guy called uh, 
and I'm going to butcher your name. I'm so sorry, but it's David Shadouin, um, who uh, writes RPG source books for, uh, and it has a website called Technical Grimoire. I'll put a link in it in no. our show notes with this. And he said he had a pastor who sat him down and said to him, the devil has never made anything. The devil can't make anything. He only steals and twists things. Certainly, some stuff can be slightly wrong and sinful, but there's always an element somewhere that is from God because it is something that is being created. So it is coming from the creator. You need to find that and bring it out at your table. I think that's a, a wonderful place to really meditate on and think on and probably bring this podcast to a close actually for today <laughs> because we should find the good in everything, find God in everything because he's there. We can't create anything without having God involved. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, oh, who was it who said this? I want to know. It's the phrase, the devil has the best music. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and it reminded me a little bit of Tenacious D and Jack Black when they were battling the devil there. Uh, here's the thing, you know, the, the devil doesn't have the best music. The devil doesn't have the best of anything. Uh, you know, and, uh, when Steve and I talked about this quote before the show, one of the things I said was, yes, I, I think the devil can corrupt what we try and create. But I think we do a better job of corrupting anything than Satan ever could. Uh, and so I, I do think it's important to meditate on creating those things which are, which bring beauty into the world, which bring hope into the world. And that's what's essential because that is the huge God element, you know. Um, you know, and, and so when we write stories and we're fighting and we're raging against the darkness, that's something beautiful, fighting against the darkness and the dark powers. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, we, we give the devil way too much credit for creativity because, hey, you know, we want to say the devil is the author of all these evil games and all these monsters. And that takes the responsibility off of us. And, uh, you know, and to realize that when we follow Jesus, there is so much beauty we can bring into this world, so much creativity we can bring into this world. And maybe we should journey along those lines. And, yeah, I, I, that's about yeah. all I got to say about that for now. <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. I'm, I'm not a pastor, so I won't close it out with a blessing like I did last time, but I'll do a quick <laughs> prayer with us. Okay. Um, so, dear God, thank you for giving us creativity. Thank you for allowing us to deal with monsters and with ghouls and with darkness and, and with horror in order to deal with all the issues that we have in life, in order to process them and be able to be healthy functioning individuals and thank you more than anything as ever lord for sending your son jesus to die for us to open the way to eternal life with you and to defeat death so we do not need to be shackled in slavery to it anymore amen 
Amen.